folklore, the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Shoes, bottles, coins. At first glance, these objects don't seem to have much in common. But these, and many other objects, are all items which have been found concealed within the fabric of old buildings during renovations or other work. In some cases, we know a little history behind the reasons for concealing these objects. Methods for constructing a witch bottle for protection against witches in your home are well recorded, for example. A glass bottle, containing hair, nail clippings, iron nails, urine and the like, might be placed in a window, up a chimney, or at some other liminal, boundary position. The explanations and folklore behind some other concealments are not as well recorded, and so we need to indulge in a little more speculation when examining these finds. It is easy to suggest that all of the items discovered were originally concealed for protection. But is this really the case? Were some placed there for sentimental reasons? Or for some other purpose? I'm Mark Norman. I'm a folklore researcher and author. Joining me on this episode of the Folklore Podcast to discuss her work with this subject is Dr Kerry Holbrook. Kerry is a historical ethnographer and archaeologist with a particular interest in the material culture of popular customs and beliefs. She currently holds a postdoctoral research position on a project at the University of Hertfordshire, Inner Lives, Emotions, Identity and the Supernatural, 1300 to 1900. Kerry works with Professor Owen Davis on The Concealed Revealed, a project strand aiming to survey concealed deposits across the UK and beyond. What makes the examination of the folklore within this project interesting is the oblique approach it takes by engaging with the contemporary finders of the objects and talking to them about their feelings surrounding their find. The ways that these people engage with their finds help to extend the stories of those objects by shedding light on the continuing relationship between them and their custodians, as well as our own ideas on magic and the supernatural. Kerry, 
Maybe we can begin by looking at the Concealed Revealed project itself. Could you tell us a little about how the project came about, what it's about, and, and what its aims are? Okay, so um, back in October, so that's October 2015, um, we started work on the Inner Lives project, which is a collaborative project between University of Hertfordshire, University of East Anglia, and UCL. Um, with Malcolm Gaskell as the principal investigator. And they got Leverhulme funding um, to work on a project about identity, emotions and the supernatural from 1300 to 1900. And Owen Davies, um, a lecturer in history at um, Hertfordshire, he's taking charge of the years 1700 to 1900. And I'm his research assistant. Um, so we're looking at um, kind of anything to do with emotions and the supernatural between the years 1700 to 1900. Um, but I'm particularly interested in looking at concealed deposits. So how people, um, what they feared, um, how they kind of harnessed the supernatural to combat those fears, how they protected their homes. Uh, so we're really interested in looking at kind of personal spaces um what was considered the most vulnerable so you know the the chimney um the doorway the windows the malevolent threats that could get through them um so witches demons the devil ghosts fairies um and how people protected those spaces um kind of fighting magic with magic um and the concealed revealed is looking at the concealed deposit, so anything from um, concealed shoes. Um, I think Northampton Shoe Museum have got records of about 2,000 concealed shoes having been recorded, um, but there's more added weekly. Um, concealed garments, so any type of clothing. Um, and then quite odd items like crockery, um, mummified cats, mummified rats, horse skulls, just a kind of very random eclectic collection of, of objects that people chose to just conceal in unusual locations within the domestic space, places where they can't have been accidentally lost. Um, and because nothing's written about them from, from those years, we don't know why they were put there. So that they were there to protect the house is just one theory amongst many. Um, and there probably isn't one one size fits all. It probably wasn't that all concealed shoes were concealed to protect the house. It's probably that one concealed shoe might have been, the other one might not have been. Um, but Concealed Revealed is taking a slightly different approach by looking more at the contemporary finders rather than the historic concealers. Um, so asking questions like, how do people find these deliberately concealed objects? What do they think when they find them? Why don't they just throw them away? Um, a lot of people feel very strongly about them. Um, people who claim to not be the least bit superstitious, to not believe in magic, um, or the preternatural power of, of what they found are still very reluctant to let them leave the house or even to let them leave kind of the close vicinity of where they were found. So you'll find that a lot of concealed shoes, when they're found, 
people want them on display, they're proud of them, they want to show them off, but at the same time they want to keep them close to where they were found. So if they were found at the chimney breast, they'll place them on a shelf over the fireplace. Um, so that's what we're really interested in looking at. What have you learned so far from the people that have found these objects about how they react with them in modern times and about how they feel about them? It's very strange, really, because so many people, they'll start their, their speech, their conversation by, I'm not superstitious. So they want to get that out there. That's kind of the disclaimer. But then they'll go on to describe quite, um, I mean, I don't like the word superstitious, but they're explaining how attached they are to these objects, which really they've not had anything to do with. They've, they've never used them. They've never seen them before. Really, they're just old grubby shoes or or a mummified rat. You know, something that you, you know, if you just saw it lying on the street, you wouldn't feel any kind of connection to. But the fact that these people find them in their homes and they they think that they were deliberately concealed by a past resident of the house, it makes them feel connected both to the object and to the past resident. So there's some kind of like enchained relationships kind of being um, fostered by these objects. Um, there's a definite feeling that the objects belong to the house. Um, so even if the person doesn't feel any superstition towards them, the object shouldn't leave the house because it's part of the house. So in a lot of cases, um, if people have found a concealed deposit, and they move, they won't take it with them. They'll leave it in the house. They'll either reconceal it or they'll tell the new owner about it. Um, so, yeah, a lot of strange emotions, um, definite uh, excitement and pride, but also sometimes fear, you know, fear about what would happen if the object left the house. Um, uh, so, yeah. What objects have you turned up so far on your researches? A lot of shoes. Um, they're my personal favourite. Uh, a small wooden figurine um, from Burwash. Uh, we call it the Burwash figure. And it's, it's quite crudely made. It's very, very small, um, probably just over a centimetre, maybe two centimetres. And it kind of looks like a pregnant woman lying on her back. So possible fertility magic or possibly just a child's toy um, that ended up being secreted away or accidentally lost. Um, but that's a special little find. Um, we're hoping to 3D scan it um, and then we can get that online. Uh, what else? Um, skeletons of cats um, underneath half stones. Uh, one was in Cumbria, and they, they laid it back underneath the half stone. Clay pipes were found up a chimney breast um, alongside another shoe. Uh, a pair of trousers were found hidden up um, in a roof void in um, the banqueting house at Whitehall in London. That was found about a month ago. What about witch bottles? Have they turned up or are they classed as something different? I am cataloguing them, but we don't. Um, we don't use the term witch bottle. Well, I, I started to, um, but we decided against it because only some of them were connected with witchcraft. Um, witch bottles are unusual because they are one of the few concealed deposits where there is um, kind of 
written sources that tell us what, what they were there for. So we do know that people were using them to repel witchcraft. But then there are other bottles that were used as kind of love charms, other bottles that were used to just cure ailments, had nothing to do with witchcraft. Um, so we do have a category of concealed bottles and they range in date from kind of 1500s to there's one at um, the Museum of London in their stores, which is a little um, brown plastic medicine bottle. Um, you'll, you'll know the kind of me if you see it, it's very modern. And that was found in the Thames with a tiny little bottle of um, oil of clove, two coins. I can't remember when they were dated to, but I think, I think 1980s and about 40 human teeth. Um, so that was found washed up on the Thames. So, I mean, do we class that as a witch bottle? It's definitely something going on about probably sympathetic magic. Did the, the person have toothache? Because um, oil of clove was was used um, for toothache as well. So maybe, and were the coins a kind of payment for the cure? I don't know. Um, but yeah, fascinating. And, and what I love about bottles is that you get a vessel and you get it concealed, but for completely different purposes, completely different reasons. And you can trace them over the years. So you get the classic kind of Bellamine jugs or Bartman jugs um, with the classic nails, pins, urine, um, maybe placed under a half stone or, or under a threshold. And that's to repel um, a witch's curse. And then, you know, go to the 1980s and you're getting a plastic medicine bottle tossed into the Thames with teeth in. Um, so yeah, it's nice to watch it kind of how how the custom adapts to fit different people's needs in different different times. What's the oldest and the most modern that you've come across? I couldn't tell you the oldest um, because I'm mainly working on from 1700 onwards. So I mean the the Bellamines, they must date back quite far. Sadly, we've not had any being found while I've been working on the project, or well, I've not heard about it. It would be great if we did. I do scour um, Twitter looking for references to people having found bottles, and there was one woman who found a bottle in her roof space and um, opened it and everyone was saying, why would you open it? You know, you're casting evil spirits onto your house. Um, but uh, I think I think she was in America. Um, I think that was a fairly modern bottle. Now, prior to this research, you've looked at other kinds of deposits and assemblages. Can you tell me a little bit about your earlier research? Well, I did my PhD at Manchester University on coin trees. Um, I guess if you don't know what a coin tree is, it's it's just a, a tree with coins embedded into its bark, uh, usually logs, sometimes stumps, sometimes living trees. And the custom comes from, well, the earliest example I've come across is in Scotland, an Isle Marie um, in the Northwest Highlands. And the earliest reference to a tree being used as some kind of altar on the island comes from 1775, I think. Um, and at the time there was a, a holy well next to the tree and people would go to the holy well for cures to um, insanity and then they would leave their offering by 
either throwing a coin into the well or placing it on the tree next to it. And over time, um, the trees, um, sorry, the coins became more about wishes, offerings to the saint um, rather than as a cure. And then the custom seemed to spread. So you get a few examples in Ireland, um, one more in, in Scotland that I know of. And then it seemed to kind of hit England in the 1990s. For some reason, it just sprung up. Um, I'm not sure which the earliest one is, possibly, possibly in Yorkshire, but for some reason, it just exploded um, and spread all throughout the country, um, all throughout England, Wales, a few modern ones in Scotland. And people today are still hammering their coins into these trees more akin to tossing a coin into a fountain so for making wishes or for good luck future fortune um although a lot of people will admit to just doing it because other people have done it or to keep their kids happy so that's what i did my phd on uh, now i'm really interested in love locks um so padlocks attached to rails usually over bridges and the tradition is that you go there as a couple, you deposit your love lock, um, and then as a, a gesture of your eternal commitment to each other, you toss your key into the river below. Um, and you're not meant to be able to, to break up unless you fish the key out of the river and unlock the love lock. Although today, I have seen a few cases where people have just tipexed out their names on the, on the love lock uh, as, a, as an easier, more modern way of um, kind of nullifying the deposit um but yeah they've they've exploded as well even more so than the coin trees because they're i really don't think you can go to a large city in europe and not come across um a lovelock assemblage because everywhere i go i'm seeing them they're, they're all over the place where did that custom start is it known it's really not known different places are claiming it as their own um, so there's a place in Hungary, uh, a place in um, Romania, uh, Serbia. They're claiming that their town started it, and some of them have got kind of origin stories. So back in World War One, um, there was a soldier, and he left his beloved, and um, so these kind of folk stories um, that possibly do date back to World War One, possibly date to the last five years. There is an argument that the actual custom comes from China, and maybe it does, but in terms of the contemporary resurgence, probably didn't get big until um, it appeared in a novel. I can't remember the name of the author, but it was Italian, um, and it was called I Want You, although I, I, don't, I don't know the Italian name for it. And in it, two teenagers who've fallen in love, one of them attaches a padlock to a bridge in Rome. And since then it, it kind of spread. Didn't get really big until it hit Paris. Um, and then there was the whole issue of, of um, kind of the bridge collapsing under the weight and um, the removal of the love locks. And there was a petition going around like no more love locks, um, which is still quite strong today. And it is interesting how different cities in different towns react to it. So some of them are really against it um, and try their best to discourage it. In Florence, it's actually um, a finable offence to deposit a love lock. 
um, other places encourage it. That they they want to attract the tourists. They want to kind of celebrate this custom, um, like Bakewell, in in England. Um, they sell Lovelocks by by the Lovelock Bridge. Um, quite. Um, shamelessly, quite happy for people to go there and attach their love locks to the bridge because it makes it an interesting site. Uh, so yeah. Other than love locks and coin trees, do you find that other random assemblages spring up in odd places? Coins are the most obvious um, because people will always have coins on them. So tossing them into fountains or placing them on a a, a grave. Um, so they're all over. The country, probably all over the world. Um, then there are places where you, you're going to get a lot of ribbons tied to trees, uh, rags, jewellery. Um, they do tend to be in places of significance for some reason, either spiritual, historical. Um, I'm trying to think of what the strangest one is. I mean, there are places where there are toys, um, teddy bears and dolls tied to trees. Um, I don't know where it is, but there's that place, the, the little fairy woods, where people are leaving little fairy doors all over the trees. I guess leave enough and it will it will just spiral from there. Um, or those places where you go into like a, a bar and people have left notes, currency, but in different, um, from different countries. So you have a wall just covered in, in currency from all over the world. Seriously, wherever you go there will be some form of assemblage. And it's, it's impossible to find out how it started and why it started. Um, and you can speak to the people who are leaving the deposits, but their answer will be, well, I'm doing it to add my own, to add it to the assemblage. They want to leave their mark. In most cases, they won't have any idea what it was for. You're interested in hearing from people who found concealed objects. How can people find out more about your project and how to get in touch with you? Well, we've got um, we've got a blog, um, so that's uh, concealed the concealed reveal wordpress com, um, and on that is my email. But my email also is um, c dot holbrook h o u l b r double o k at gmail dot com, um, and Twitter at Conceal Reveal or hashtag Conceal Reveal. Um, we've also got a Facebook page, <laughs> The Conceal's Revealed. Um, so any any form of um, that. We're trying to pin the locations of these concealed deposits on history pins. So we've got a, the Conceal Reveal collection on history pin, where anyone, as long as you've got an account, an account is free and it's easy to sign up, you can just go on and pin your own find, so a photograph of it, whatever information you've got about it, no matter how little, um, you just pin it where it where it was found in the world, um, and we're hoping to to get a kind of a global view. Um, the earthquake that struck um, Christchurch in New Zealand left a lot of buildings kind of half destroyed, so they've had to demolish a lot. And um, this archaeology firm have gone in um, to kind of deal with the, the the rubble, see what they can find. And they found a lot of concealed deposits. Some of them are clearly more time capsules, but we're equally interested in those. 
Um, so they're going to go onto History Pin and start pinning their finds. And that would be brilliant because really don't know much about the custom in New Zealand. Um, so that would be great. But I guess what I what we do want to make clear is that we're not exclusive at all about what we're looking for. It doesn't have to be an obviously protective object. It doesn't even have to have obviously been deliberately concealed. It just has to have been found in a strange place in a building for us to be interested. So it could it could have been an accidental loss. It could have been um, intended more as a time capsule. Um, it could have been, it might be something that was just shoved in there as a joke. Maybe the builders left something of their own there when they renovated um, or, or built something. Just anything. We're just interested in how people interpret them and what they feel about finding odd things in their houses. If people are interested in seeing these sorts of concealed objects, can you recommend places that exhibit these sorts of finds? Well, sadly, a lot of places, even though they have concealed deposits as part of their collections, they don't tend to be on display. They tend to be more in store. So to see them, you might have to contact the curator, but they're always happy to show you. Places where they're actually on display, um, there are a few concealed shoes on display in Northampton Museum. Um, they're going to be undergoing some kind of big development restoration um, and they're hoping to get concealed shoes kind of a more prominent place in the exhibition so hopefully soon um, there'll be a, a good display of concealed shoes um, then there's the museum of witchcraft in Boscastle in uh, Cornwall which is interesting because a lot of the people I've spoken to have said that they had no idea when they found odd concealed deposits in their homes the significance the significance of it until they went to the museum of witchcraft. So this seems to be more than the internet, more than books. Museums seem to be the place where people get their, their information, where they realise that that shoe they found up the chimney is more than just a shoe. It was intended for something. It was put there, it was probably put there on purpose. Um, so yeah, Museum of Witchcraft is probably the best place to go for information about concealed deposits. My thanks to Dr Kerry Holbrook for a fascinating introduction to some of the stories behind these concealed objects and their discoveries. Kerry's biography can be found on the guests page on the Folklore Podcast website, where there are links to contact her. Each episode of the Folklore Podcast is supported with an episode supplement containing not only a show transcript, but a wealth of additional information and suggested reading. Each supplement is presented as an electronic magazine, beautifully designed by Melissa Martell at MDM Creative, and costs just 99p, or just over a dollar. It's a tiny amount, but it helps to cover the costs of producing this show. This episode supplement contains additional concealed object finds and a gallery of photos of found items, links to video interviews, and more. Get yours by visiting our website at www www.thefolklorepodcast.com While you're on the website, click on our contact page and subscribe for our free monthly newsletter to receive exclusive news about future episodes, special offers and more. Reviews are vital to us. Your feedback at Facebook and Twitter so far has been stunning, and we are humbled by it. Please also rate us on iTunes, as that's the place where we really get noticed. Some of you have asked about support for the show. Well, 
The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to. But if you want to support our running costs, it's not free for us to produce, then that's a wonderful gesture. There's absolutely no pressure, but to facilitate this for you, I've added a donate button to the website. No suggested amounts, no questions, just a button. Thank you for your continued support, and thanks for listening. Join me next episode, where I'll be discussing links between black dog apparitions and the wild hunt. See you next time.